In the United Kingdom, the pageantry of the Queen's funeral is over, so it's back to a class war. <laughs> I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses is still firing. Some listeners may be old enough to remember when that cartoon moose was about to try once again to pull a rabbit out of his hat. Rocky the squirrel, the wise one, said to Bullwinkle, that trick never works. But Bullwinkle did it anyway with the same result, of course. Paul Krugman has referred to the right's insistence on trickle-down economics as zombie economics. They should be dead, but somehow they keep walking among us. As Rocky said, that trick, cutting taxes for the very richest and imagining that will boost the economy and trickle down in its time of need, that trick never works. Yet, the United Kingdom's newly named Prime Minister, Liz Truss, did exactly that. And what a surprise, reality caught up with her really fast. As a returning guest, Professor Kenneth Surin notes, in just 10 days in office, the budget she and her Chancellor of the Exchequer offered, quote, sent the country into a nosedive on the currency and bond markets, end of quote. Her proposal sent the value of the British pound into a free fall, and with just Ten days in office, the Prime Minister had to do a sudden U-turn. Well, today, we're going to talk about what's going on in the old mother country and why it matters to us in America. As our guest writes, these reforms come at a time when the UK economy is virtually on its knees. Why would she do that? What is she thinking? Our returning guest is Kenneth Surin. Thanks so much for being back with us on Keeping Democracy Alive, Professor. Oh, you're welcome. Kenneth Surin is a professor of literature and professor of religion and critical theory. He trained initially as an analytical philosopher. His teaching areas include Anglophone literatures outside England, philosophy, critical theory, Marxism, state theory, and international political economy. His article appears on Counterpunch, and the title is After the Royal Psychodrama, the Tory Neoliberal Class War Resumes. Ah, class wars. So much fun. Well, it sure wasn't long before the great worldwide outpouring of love for the queen and the country she ruled with such total personal commitment hit a self-inflicted speed bump. Boy, it was quick. Let's start with you telling us, please, about the key features of Liz Truss's budget proposal. Who gains and who loses? Well, um, to provide some context, um, because you know this budget didn't come out of the blue, um, we have to recall that the British government, uh, for the past 50 years, uh, each government, whether it's Labour or Conservative, has done worse when it comes to uh, getting the country uh, to move away from a flatlining economy. Um, British growth 
economic growth has been largely stagnant for the last 50 years. And to repeat my point, each government, uh, regardless of its political affiliation, uh, has done worse than the other. Um, The Tory government, since 2010, they've been in power for 12 years, has been the worst of the lot. And Truss's new budget uh, is even more irresponsible than the budgets of her predecessor. Uh, As you indicated, uh, it is a trickle-down budget. Mm -hmm. Uh, One one political commentator called it bootleg Thatcherism, uh, which it in fact is. And any attempt to revive Thatcherism, uh, even in the smallest way, has done absolutely nothing for the UK economy. And just to remind people on this side of the big pond, Thatcherism, she was in power for quite some time. And what was her effect on the uh, UK economy, the the class war? Um, Well, I think the two main features of her economic policy were, uh, first, wealth transfers to the already wealthy. Um, You've mentioned that. Um, Make the rich richer and hope that uh, the extra riches that they uh, acquire um, will somehow trickle down to those poorer members of society. The second thing that she did um, was uh, privatization and outsourcing of publicly owned enterprises, Uh the utilities, uh, the railway. Well, the railway was done by her successor, um, John Major, uh, but it was already on her books. You know, sell the lot to uh, the private sector uh, at a giveaway price. Um, And the private sector was, if you like, uh, flush full of her cronies. Um, So it it was um, not just uh, trickle-down economics, uh, it was also a form of crony capitalism. And so who who benefits from this? And maybe we can talk a little bit about some of the tax cuts for the top income top income earners. Uh, uh, go ahead. Um, well, Thatcher did that. Mm-hmm. Um, and l- let's just name it for what it is, uh, a wealth transfer from those who are less well-off to those who have more than enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and this term that turned out to be uh, a key aspect of Liz Truss's budget, um, there were $50 billion, U.S. dollars, mm-hmm. uh, worth of tax cuts, primarily for uh, high-income earners. Um, she removed the 45% tax rate for those of in, uh, for those on incomes of more than $166,000 a year. Uh, She promptly had to do a U-turn on that um, because uh, of the public outcry and the facts, or the several facts uh, that were consequent upon her budget that you have just mentioned. Uh, The pound sterling going into a tailspin, borrowing going up because the Bank of England had to raise interest rates um, mm-hmm. in order to uh, um, to halt 
the drain away from the pound sterling, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So she did a U-turn, she and her chancellor, Quasi Quateng, nicknamed in in social media, Queasy Quateng. She and her chancellor of the Exchequer had to do a prompt U-turn on those tax cuts for the wealthy. Um, well, despite and then, of course, and then she she had to she and her chancellor, who were not on the same page after mm. the budget was delivered, um, had made various noise, noises about. Well, let's backtrack a little bit. Her budget was completely uh, uncosted. Um, there were no financial projections. A budget normally in in uh, in Britain has to be scrutinised by uh, the government gov- the government's own uh, o- uh, office of budget responsibility OBR uh-huh. Uh-huh. and she got round this uh, by saying well this was not a budget uh, her precise words for describing it was a fiscal event. Uh, end of quote. So she sidestepped uh, scrutiny of her budget by her own government. Um, and what she had to do in order to reassure the markets and to arrest her plunge in the opinion polls was to say, well, um, my chancellor will provide some costing estimates uh, at the end of October. Um, the chancellor was due to provide these at the end of November. So she brought it forward by a month, but he hasn't agreed with her on that. So we don't know exactly when, uh, the budget will be uh, supplemented with cost estimates, uh, funding proposals, et cetera, et cetera. Um, this vague noises that this, could happen sooner rather than later. Um, And several other things that were problematic about the budget were not addressed. Um, The EU, for example, uh, placed a cap on bankers' bonuses Mm -hmm. after the uh, uh, 2008 financial collapse. Um, She removed these uh, 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 these caps um, in her budget, uh, but while she did a U-turn on the tax rate for the top income earners, she said nothing about this cap on bankers' bonus bonuses. Um, so, uh, anyone anyone earning less than one hundred and sixty-six thousand dollars. Will lose, will lose under uh, her new tax system. Uh, the, the independent uh, economic think tank, uh, the New Economic Foundation, estimates that the budget will see incomes for the poorest 10% of British households uh, fall behind rising costs by almost $1,000 a year on average. While at the same time, okay, so the poorest 10% take a hit uh, 
because their 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 taxes won't be adjusted to cope with rising inflation. While this is happening, the incomes of the richest five percent of Brits will exceed uh, the uh, uh, the rise in costs, uh, mainly driven by inflation, by nearly ten thousand dollars a year. So one will lose. The poorest will lose a thousand a year, and the richest will gain almost ten thousand a year uh, when it comes to keeping up with the rate of inflation. And to suggest that that's going to help the economy is just—it's—it's it's mind-boggling, really. As, as Rocky said to Bullwinkle, that trick never works. And despite that fact that it never works, the idea of trickle-down economics has often been popular with politicians who call themselves conservative. And the the exchequer or finance minister, uh, Kwasi Kwarteng, he must have worked with economic experts and the banking community before presenting the budget, or, or did he? How, did he just go it alone? I mean, that's kind of... Well, unusual. you know, there's one parallel between the UK and this country, and it's the influence of very uh, uh, heavily, if you like, donated to think tanks uh, on the right who produce pamphlets. You know, these are ideologues. They're not real economists. Mm -hmm. They call themselves economists, but they're pamphlet-distributing, uh, uh, pamphlet producing uh, ideologues. And uh, Kwarteng has had ties with, uh, with some of these right-wing think tanks. Um, so he says he consults with people, but it's really a closed circle. Um, you know, it's basically mutual reinforcement mm. uh, for um, a form of dogma. Uh, as you say, there's been absolutely no evidence that trickle-down um, economics or zombie economics, as right. you quoted, call Paul Krugman is saying, there's been absolutely no evidence that even a shred of trickle-down uh, has actually percolated down to those who do not have uh, much. Well, I guess it wouldn't be the first time that a government uh, rewards their contributors and and the wealthy and to heck with everybody else. It's kind of surprising to me, given that you know a prime minister and a chancellor of the exchequer, I would think kind of have a a responsibility that maybe there's an expectation that their budget might be good for the country as a whole. And that's it. the, the, the irony of coming after uh, the, the queen uh, who so clearly just was a servant of the country, of the nation. Uh, and, 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 you know, just did every, her whole life was devoted to uh, England and the UK and here are newly, well, elected uh, people who are, are, are running the new government, and they're just uh, tossing that on, on their head. For those who may have just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here. Our guest today is uh, Professor Kenneth Surin, 
talking about the UK uh, right after the royal psychodrama ended, the funeral of the Queen, the Tory neoliberal class war resumes. I, I, I just, it's amazing to me how just blatant it is. In, in light of the reaction, which was universally negative, the reaction to her presentation of, of the budget, how is it that Truss reiterated, she said the policy was a correct one. What did she cite as the reason for its poor reception? Something about, oh, well, laying the groundwork better? Really? Does she believe that? What, what does she have to say about that? Um, well, she said, uh, um, you know, she thinks in very simple terms. Hmm. Um, uh, what, some some would say uh, those who agree with her that you have to put things in simple terms uh, to uh, the ordinary person. Others would say but she's not capable of doing any thinking uh, herself beyond uh, the most simplistic of terms. So what she the the image she uses is this that uh, the UK. Um, since the end of the Second World War, uh, has basically been a redistributionist society. Mm. Um, mm. So basically, what it's done is uh, purport, because in her eyes, this has not worked. What the UK has done is to purport to slice the economic pie uh, in ways that are fairly even. But it has, it has done this at the expense of growing the pie, making the pie larger. Mm. So what she says is there has to be a radical economic trans transformation uh, in order to grow this, I would call it a mythical pie, because or put this pie in the sky, hmm. um, uh, something radical has to be done uh, in order to grow this economic pie. And what's this radical solution? Trickle-down economics. Uh -huh. all, always but, you know, um, with ideologues, these are matters of faith. Hmm. Um, uh, empirical analysis simply does not intrude into their thinking. Uh, well, unfortunately, there's a fair amount of politics that the UK and the United States share. Simplistic, ideologically driven reality. So what? Doesn't you know? It doesn't, it doesn't matter. And it's just having a government serve the very richest at the expense of everybody else. And it doesn't. It. it I, I'm, you know, I, I'm old enough to remember Rocky and Bullock. I'm old enough to remember when we had a middle class here. Is there a middle class in the UK? Well, it depends. I mean, you know, uh, the age-old debate about whether uh, which which will have priority in one's definitions of class uh, is it economic position uh, of the individual. Or is it the ascription of a certain status that, uh, to that individual? To that individual. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, and you know, 
in in all that mix is this blue collar versus white collar, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now we know that there are some blue collar jobs that uh, are reasonably well paid, while at the same time there are white collar jobs, uh, low level bookkeeping, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, that are not very well paid. Mm-hmm. So, is there is there a middle class? Um, the question is this. Um, and I think uh, the evidence is similar in the U.S. that people, uh, first of all, um, people when they ask when they are asked in polling to say to which class they belong, uh, invariably inflate their social position. Sure. Um, and uh, the other thing that happens is they just don't know. And survey after survey indicates this. They just don't know how wealthy the really rich are. Uh-huh. You know, they think that a rich person is only a couple of steps up the ladder from where they are. Whereas, you know, if you had a ladder that stretched to the moon, um, that's where people like Bill Gates and Warren uh, Buffett right. and uh, Bezos, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, would be. So that skews people's perceptions yeah. of their class affiliation. Yeah, I wonder why. Pardon me. There, oh, sure. Why there's no, uh, not not a lot of class consciousness in either of our two countries, the U.S. and and the U.K. And I think it's because, yeah, people want to. St- they they want to identify with people in a slightly higher economic uh, uh, level. Uh, they don't want to. They they want to be above, uh, you know, people uh, living in in trailer parks and things like that. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know uh, what compounds this in the UK is, um, and I think uh, you know this fairly well. It's an extremely deferential society. Uh, um, forelock tugging, uh, cap doffing, etc., etc., is ingrained in the consciousness of many British people. I wouldn't say all, right. uh, because that would be an exaggeration, but uh, the modus operandi of the political and social dynamic in the UK is deference. Huh. Interesting. I, I I think that may be one difference between yes. the the yes. two countries. We we are not deferential, to put it mildly. Here, in in your article, yeah. you say that quote individuals on benefits will be required to increase their attempts to find a job, or risk having their already meager benefits reduced. Below par welfare will thus become workfare. Well. What's wrong with that? And and is this reflective of a class struggle which has gone on for a long time in the UK? What about that welfare to workfare? I mean, uh, Reagan did it. Uh, Bill Clinton tried it. So so what's wrong with that? And how does that affect the economic stability? Well, first of all, um, there will be increasing surveillance of people who are on benefits, oh boy. Okay, because they will have to prove that they're attempting to find a job. Now, what this will 
uh, encourage, of course, as uh, a necessary uh, undertaking on the part of people of benefits is they have to show that they are putting in applications for jobs. Now, uh, you know, I before I became an academic, uh, I did all kinds of jobs. And you have to spend money to put in a proper application for a job. Um, if you get to the interview stage, uh, you have to take public transport, maybe a taxi or the subway, et cetera, et cetera. And then you have to make telephone calls. Uh, you have to go to an outfit like Kinko's, et cetera, et cetera, to print copies of your resume. Um, you need to approach previous employers uh, for uh, references, et cetera, et cetera. So applying for a job costs money. And these are people who are, you know, who have holes in their shoes, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And you are making it a condition of their continuing to be on below-par welfare that they spend more money making fruitless job applications. Because most, pe most people who are on benefits, um, well, there are a few shirkers, okay? There's no, um, there's no doubt about that. Uh, there are a few shirkers, but compared to those at the top, who tax uh, dodge, um, they are relatively few. The rest of the people uh, are either too old for the job market, who are on benefits, or have some kind of disability, um, or, uh, uh, or are caught in this um, trap of to work, if you have children, you have to pay for childcare. Um, so you lose money by working in that, in that regard. So basically what tends to happen is that the often single mothers, uh, who have young children, um, find it economically more viable to stay at home, be on benefits and look after your children. Um, so really, it's a, it's this. You must look for a job and prove that you're looking for a job in order to continue to receive benefit. Is really a form of, uh, of punishment for the poor. Mm. Yeah, that that ideology does carry over quite a bit, unfortunately. And so you say, abandoned is any aim to reduce inequality which will, yes. will now be widened as a matter of policy. So is it actually intentional to preserve and, and even uh, grow inequality? Um, yes, uh, because to go back to the uh, pie-in-the-sky image that I invoked earlier, um, the thinking behind this ideology, which is what it is, is this that as long as you attempt to reduce inequality, you are simply going to slice up the same old pie in a slightly different way. So you have to 
uh, exacerbate inequality, according to this way of thinking, in order to grow the pie. Um, some people at mm. the bottom simply have to have less of the pie so that the people at the top, who have the biggest slices of the pie anyway, uh, can, according to this way of thinking, make the pie larger. Of course, it's, you know, uh, horse doo-doo or mm. some similar term, if you want to call it <laughs> that. Uh, it's, it's just never worked, and it's never going to work. But people are going to, have, people are going to pay a price. Those least able to pay a price are the ones who are going to have to pay this price. Gosh, uh, it, it's remarkable. And uh, at some point in our discussion, Professor Soren, we'll get to uh, where is the left in England? But there's a lot to cover uh, between now and then. And here in the United States, the libertarian right has always cozied up to the wealthiest sector, not particularly publicly, but... They do it anyway. You write that in the UK under the new proposed budget, regulatory safeguards on the financial sector, energy company, and property developers will be loosened. America's MAGA Republicans would love that. What effects might that yield? How might it fit in with a traditional class war? And there, I've, I've had the impression that there has been a class war in the UK, off and on for the decades? Um, well, you know, uh, I am a Marxist. I wouldn't say I'm a, uh, um, a non-aligned Marxist. Um, I have my political alignments. I'm a member of the Labour Party. Oh, good. Um, under duress, since Keir Starmer became its leader. Um, well, according to that analysis, there's always been a class war in the sense that even before capitalism, uh, there were feudal overlords and serfs and peasants, et cetera, et cetera. So, but, okay, leave that to one side. Since the days of Mrs. Thatcher, that class war has become increasingly evident uh, and increasingly vicious. Ah. Uh, um, basically, uh, the... The subtext in this class war is a moralization yep. uh, of uh, poverty. Um, you you are poor because of your moral failure. Mm -hmm. uh, in a nutshell. Right. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. But that goes back quite a few hundred years. The, yes, the idea of, of being the elect. And having money proves that you are one of the elect. That was, I think, yes. it was the uh, the so-called Puritans here in America. Yep, yeah. And for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about the effects on democracy in the UK as well as here in America. Our guest today is uh, Professor Kenneth Surin, Professor of Literature and Religion and Critical Theory, uh, at down at uh, Duke University in uh, North Carolina, I believe. And economists like those who advised Franklin Roosevelt, including John Maynard Keynes, argued that deficit spending, investing in the common good, yields positive results. 
and the evidence is there to prove it. No lack of evidence. Now, in the Truss Quartang uh, uh, budget, there is what you call an unprecedented extra $411 billion or, uh, pounds, $455 billion of public borrowing over the next five years. So in a way, that sounds sort of good, but where does that money go? How is it invested or proposed to um, be? Well, it's investment, I think, uh, is uh, an inaccurate term. Uh-huh. Yeah, of course, the government <laughs> would say it's, it's investment. It's basically money that will be channeled into the pockets of the rich. Uh, well, I suppose that's a form of investment. Yeah. If, you, <laughs> if you think like Reagan and Thatcher and Liz Truss now, um, but that's what, what it is. The government is going to have to borrow more uh, because it's reducing its ta- tax take. Uh, so it, it won't have uh, the revenues that it used to have by virtue of these tax reductions. And it has to uh, make up the shortfall by borrowing more. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, you know, it was this, uh, precisely this, that sent the pound sterling into a tailspin uh, that basically made hedge funders glow with absolute pleasure at the sight of the, the pound uh, falling because they could bet against it on currency markets. So, uh-huh. uh, uh, um, Kwarteng is very friendly uh, with a coterie of hedge fund owners. <laughs> and uh, people are accusing him of a conflict of interest because uh, his mini-budget, so-called, uh-huh. uh, is uh, of directly visible benefit to people who own hedge funds. Um, and he produces a, a, a budget, which, of course, gives them even more money. Um, so the Labour Party, for example, um, has asked a question in Parliament uh, for Kwarteng to list all the donors uh, that he's had uh-huh. And all the meetings that he's had with hedge fund managers and owners. Um, now, whether this list will be produced or not, uh, we uh-huh. don't. I, I, I won't hold my breath. Uh. Uh, yes. <laughs> and as, rightly, rightly so, Bert. <laughs> as, as you point out, as stated earlier, these reforms that they're talking about come at a time when the UK economy is virtually on its knees. And you compare the level of homelessness and hunger to levels not seen since the 1930s. We haven't seen any of this on the American news media. What, tell, tell us about that reality in, in the UK that, uh, I mean, homelessness and hunger, that's a big deal. That is a very big deal. Um, I, I think to, to give you some perspective on this, um, when the Tories under David Cameron came to power in 2010, there was something like uh, two dozen food banks in the UK. Uh, there are now almost 2,000. 
Uh, I think the number is one eight hundred to one to maybe nineteen hundred. Um, so there's been an exponential growth in food banks. That's one indicator uh, of the level of food po- food poverty. Um, homelessness. Uh, well, homelessness has increased since the stock of social housing uh, started to diminish under Mrs. Thatcher. Um, it steadied a little bit under New Labour, uh, New, New Labour's Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. Um, but then, uh, despite uh, pious words about uh, increasing the level of social housing, etc., etc., this has not happened. Mm. Um, so homelessness has been on the increase, not just, you know, in the last 12 years or so, to be honest, mm-hmm. but uh, even before that. Wow. Yeah, we're just not getting a picture of that. And of course, if one thinks of the UK, you can't help but think of Brexit. My sense, correct me if I'm wrong, I, uh, I was frankly a little surprised when it was passed in 2016. My sense is that it was because really a wide antipathy toward immigrants. Yes. Nothing, nothing more. And that the, the working class voted for it uh, to a large extent. Again, you know, feeling like, well, perhaps immigrants will compete for jobs. That, that's the same thing that's said here in, in uh, the currently United States. Um, part of the identity of Trumpists in the, UK, in, in the United States is a mistrust of experts. How much of a factor is that in the UK today? So I guess it's, it's two questions. How much of a factor is Brexit in what's going on here and, and how uh, perhaps uh, the new prime minister's hands have been tied? And, and what about uh, this mistrust of experts and, and enabling people who don't know what the heck they're talking about to uh, <laughs> create policy? Um, well, you know, uh, exactly that kind of thing was said by Michael Gove, who was the minister uh. in charge of Brexit um, under Boris Johnson, um, when uh, questions were raised inside Parliament and outside, you know, why are you ignoring uh, the uh, professionals um, who know about trade treaties, who know about budgets, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, why aren't you consulting with them? Uh, why are you just ignoring them? And I think Go said something like this, we have too much trust in experts. Mm. Um, mm. <laughs> so, yes, there is a parallel in the UK to what you said was happening in this country under Trump. Ah, yes. How unfortunate. But uh, I'm curious, too, about, I mean, obviously, the UK, all those uh, uh, flags uh, uh, were, you know, all over the the news and the great pageantry of the uh, funeral for the the great queen. And the new monarch, King Charles III, seems to be a real environmentalist. And he's talked about that for a long time. Before this new government, there had been plans to achieve net zero fossil fuel growth. Now, 
what can we expect on that front? The UK had a terrible heat wave this past summer. I'm guessing people died. I don't know. Where is the public on global warming and climate change? And might this new proposed budget have an impact on, on that? Well, it certainly will, because, um, you know, there are many strands to to any budget these days in an advanced industrial society. And one of the strands is basically opting uh, for non-green sources of energy, namely nuclear and fracking. Um, so uh, there will be restrictions lifted um, on the enhancement of nuclear power and the reintroduction. There was a moratorium on fracking. Um, that's going to be lifted. So, uh, And then, since you mentioned Charles III, uh, who has some uh, has some credentials as an environmentalist, mm-hmm. though he's happy to fly everywhere. Um, he he was going to go to the COP twenty seven conference. That's the conference that, if you like, is a follow on from the Paris Accords. The uh, major industrial countries. Uh, get together and, if you like, have a powwow about their implementation of the Paris Accords, etc., etc. Charles wanted to attend this COP27 conference. I believe it is held in Cairo, Egypt. And Liz Truss, uh, well, the news that came out of Buckingham Palace is that Liz Truss advised the king not to travel to that conference, not to go to that conference. I mean, there you have it. Um, of course, we can see what's behind Truss's thinking. Mm. Um, the, uh, the, the, all the attendees at the, at the conference, uh, you know, mainly to assuage their bad consciences, uh, because hardly anybody is doing their darndest to implement the Paris Accords. Let's face yeah. it. But a country like the UK, uh, making it blatantly clear that it's going to ditch every aspect of the Paris Accords, uh, or this new budget uh, makes that clear, sending Charles to this conference will simply make him a whipping boy, uh, you know, taking lashes from all the other uh, conference attendees. So trust uh, clearly thought, you know, let's save uh, a private jet trip to and fro from London to Cairo um, and save ourselves uh, a tongue lashing um, from the other attendees at the COP27 conference. So I don't know how much Charles's response to that will be. Um, you know, the monarch is meant to be above politics, right, so we know right. that's not the case. Yeah. So he's not going to say anything publicly about it, but I'd love to be a fly on the wall somewhere in Buckingham Palace to see what his response to Truss's, mm. uh, quote, advice was, or is, or will be. Well, this is certainly not the first time where my sense is that he gets to chafe at the restrictions around him. 
Yeesh. Oh, boy, what a fun <laughs> job that must be. Um, well, there, there's basically two parties in, in the UK, the, the Tories, the Conservative Party, and the Labour Party. I guess there's a Liberal Party, too, but not much of that. What happened? Let's talk first about the Conservative Party meeting in Birmingham when Kwasi Karteng uh, spoke to those gathered. How was he received? And this is the Tories, the people that just elected uh, Truss as uh, prime minister. Um, I think one political sketch writer uh, said that uh, um, when Kwasi ended his speech, you could hear. The, the Zen-like one hand clapping. <laughs> In other words, there was largely uh, silence when he finished speaking. You know, the Tories are 33% down in the latest opinion poll. And so those people attending the Tory party conference in Birmingham were not going to be happy campers. Um, uh-huh. Well, where is the Labour Party? I mean, we've seen what happened, unfortunately, here to the Democratic Party when when uh, the Clinton corporate wing took over. It wasn't very good, and it didn't really help the Democrats that much. The Labour Party you know, used to be pretty openly Marxist and quite, you know, they, there are no pretenses about that. It, to me, it appears that the Labour Party... Uh, had its backbone removed. They, yes. they they had their conference in Liverpool recently. One might think this disastrous and ill-thought-out budget might present an easy opening for Labour, especially with the popularity of the Tories down uh, so low. But the head of the party is now Keir Starmer. You note that Labour's conference confirmed that party leader Starmer has abandoned the principles of the 1945 Clement Attlee government which created the UK's welfare state. Okay, so please, uh, Ken, tell us about that and about whether or not there is an active left in England anymore, as had been the case for so many decades. Didn't Truss and Kwasi hand the opponents a powerful weapon? What was this? Um, of course they did. You know, but um, in a strange way, the weapon, as you call it, that was handed to Starmer uh, has further de-radicalized uh, the Labour Party. Really? Because, yeah, well, all Starmer has to do is to continue sitting on the fence. <sighs> and uh, the opinion, opinion poll after opinion poll uh, simply uh, indicates to him that he has no need to step off the, the fence. Okay, he's done one small thing. He promised at the conference... Uh, to restore the top tax rate to 45% from Truss's uh, uh, reduction of that rate to 40%. He also promised to invest in the National Health Service, mm -hmm. schools, and child, child care. <clears throat> but he's also refu he refused to reverse uh, the one penny cut in the basic rate of tax uh, to to show that she had a little care and concern for those at the bottom of the heap. Uh, trust reduced the tax rate for those at the bottom from 20% to 19%. Uh, 
Starmer could have made the smallest gesture. Sorry, she put that tax up from 19% to 20%. So, you know, those at the bottom got a, a tax uh, increase. Uh, whereas uh, he, Starmer, refused to overturn that. No, I got that the wrong way. Sorry. To assuage those at the bottom of the pile, she cut the tax rate from 20 to 19%, which, of course, is an absolute pittance. Um, and, but he refused to reverse it, uh, even though Britain is going to face incredible revenue shortfalls, as I pointed out earlier, in the coming years. Mm. Um, so there we are. And as you say... In battles to select parliamentary candidates at the next election, which can be held, I guess, any time, uh, some more social democratic candidates have been suspended for dubious reasons. What's going on there? Is there some kind of a, a purge within the uh, Labor Party? You know, to be accurate here, um, the parliamentary selection process, the selection process for candidates to stand in the general election uh -huh. has always led itself in on the part of all the major parties some kind of boondoggling. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, uh, the leaders of the party um, want to parachute in their own uh, pals, mm -hmm. their own cronies, into uh, those parliamentary seats. Uh, and, of course, the selection is done by uh, the local parties. So there is often uh, a head-on clash um, between the local parties, who, in the case of Labour, tend to be far more uh, inclined towards socialism Mm -hmm. than a Labour Party led by someone like Tony Blair, mm. who was notorious for parachuting in, uh, 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 if you like, uh, lapdogs mm -hmm. uh, who would support oh, yes. his agenda come hell or high water. Mm. And Starmer has borrowed this trick from Tony Blair. He wants to parachute in his own candidates and overrule the uh, uh, the local um, Labour Party. Now, the one way of doing this, of course, is to institute disciplinary proceedings, uh -huh. basically trumped-up charges uh, against um, uh, the more radical candidates uh, who are being put forward by the local parties. Um, a little bit, if if you like, uh, akin to the way that the Democrats mm -hmm. uh, boondoggle things against Bernie Sanders. Absolutely. Uh, when he was standing. Um, so this kind of boondoggling uh, within the context of the British parliamentary system, of course, this kind of boondoggling is going on in the UK. And certainly here in, in the US, there, there are the great majority of Democrats, you know, people on the ground are traditional Democrats, you know, being solid advocates for working people. But that is not what's happening at the top in the, the DNC. 
they want to parachute in their people as well. And they, there's a real kind of running battle, as as you saw back in uh, 2016, when uh, the the DNC uh, insisted that we have their candidate uh, Hillary Clinton. And of course, I think people saw her as what she was, rather elitist and not uh-huh. ca- caring about the average middle uh, middle income yeah. people. And we got uh, Donald Trump. The, I know. Th- that the, we were in America enamored, a lot of us, with Jeremy Corbyn as we were with Bernie Sanders. Is that wing of the party really moribund? Is it crushed, dead? It seems like this year and next year, should be an excellent opportunity for a powerful voice from a left opposition that's from the people, not from the you know leaders of the party. What, what do you see on that? Is there any gathering strength of, of you know average working people who are traditional labor party people? You know, at the level of uh, party headquarters politics, <laughs> because, you know, the equivalent of the DNC mm-hmm. in the UK would be the the, the headquarters of each party, uh-huh. um, the apparatchiks, etc., mm-hmm. uh, etc., et who are there to enforce party discipline, control the budgets, etc., uh, etc. Et um, the at that level, uh, the left in the Labour Party has been marginalized. Now, at the grassroots level, um, I'm not so sure because, you know, there the picture is murkier. But the fact that there seem to be concerted attempts to prevent uh, more radical candidates from emerging locally seems to indicate that there is still a fear uh, on the part of party headquarters, a fear of what the grassroots might get up to. Um, I was sorry to miss this. You know, I'm recovering from spinal surgery. No. And I, I had to miss the uh, Liverpool Conference of the Labour Party. Um, I normally go to that. Uh-huh. Uh, and I would have been able to have a clearer view, uh, you know, simply by hanging around the bars and the uh, mm. uh, the coffee shops around the conference venue, a sense of what grassroots right. thinking, but I couldn't do that. But my sense is that it is much more alive in the local parties than it is at party headquarters. Right. So we'll have to see. Absolutely. That's very similar to what's going on here. There's a lot of action at, at the local level. People are getting involved and they're trying to bring the party back and you got to stand up for something and not just i mean sitting on the fence you know that's one strategy but uh, you know i think firing people up getting people inspired connecting with people i i personally think that's a, a better way to go and as you say eukania which is not a term i'm real familiar with has become a lutocracy and it seems like that's uh, reinforced with the uh, budget of, uh, of trust that's, that's happening now. What will change the lutocracy? Any, anything? Or is it just kind of locked in for a while because the Labor Party is so spineless? Well, I think 
what Starmer is doing uh, has profound affinities with uh, Clintonite and Blairite triangulation. Okay, and what underpins uh, that process is the thought that you only win elections from this mythical center. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yes. So the part, uh, the party that monopolizes the center ground, is the party that will win elections. So yeah. what we see on the part of Stalin is a rush to the center, the mm. mythical center, mm. Mm. because it doesn't exist, of course. No. Um, so uh, that rush to the myth- mythical center de-radicalizes uh, politics, because its underlying premise is this, that uh, the political structures of a country, the UK, the US, uh, can be tinkered with, but never fundamentally altered. Um, so, uh, whereas Corbyn was interested in doing some fundamental opera- uh, alterations to the UK's political structures, uh, Starmer has made it absolutely clear that he's a tinkerer mm. and not an alterer. Well, let's let's see what happens. It's interesting in this country. It's interesting in the UK. And, uh, boy, there's a lot of work to do to try to bring some sense of decency and, and to really help the overall economy of a country. It's been so good to talk to you again, Professor Kenneth Surin. The article in Counterpunch, which I recommend to people, is titled After the Royal Psychodrama, the Tory Neoliberal Class War resumed. So it has. Thank you so much for being with us today and for uh, shedding light into that uh, curious island across the way. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Bob. Right.